Hello, hello, hello. Welcome to this week's That Tech Show. I am your host, Samuel Gregory. And I'm your host, Chris Adams. We've got a cracking show lined up for you today. We have Patrick on the show. Chris, who is Patrick? So Patrick is an old friend of mine from Love Film and Amazon and many more, actually. And he's one of the smartest people I know, with his abilities ranging from natural language processing to video delivery. He's a master of search, capacity planning and scaling. And he's currently heading up an engineering team from MyKuju in the Netherlands, which is a team he's grown from a startup. They've had to solve some really hard challenges as they stream thousands of live football matches for the more underdeveloped leagues out to millions of customers. So if you're building a startup and you're looking for some technical direction, you want to scale your infrastructure to cope with Black Friday like Amazon do, or you just want to stream your local five-a-side match to your friends and family, then this episode is for you. Lovely stuff. Here is Patrick. Hey, so I'm, uh, I'm Patrick, Patrick Plaatje, uh, and I'm a director of technology for an Amsterdam-based company called MyKudio. Um, although, like, we've merged two weeks ago, and we're now part of the 11 Sports Group family. Um, so as, uh, as two weeks ago, I, I think I'm now tech director for uh, 11 Sports instead of MyKudio. Um, worked in MyKudio for the last two and a half years. Um, the company um, is basically build a platform for the long tail of football content, uh, and that means that uh, we basically build a platform to host the 99.99% of football content across the world that you never see on a television. Um, before that, I worked with uh, Chris in um, Prime Video for a little bit, a um, couple of well, years, that's I good. guess. Let- let, let's let's go into that then. So we don't, that's a bit of enough of an interview, <laughs> enough right. of an intro. Good. <laughs> um, but I like that you're not sure that you're uh, the technical director. <laughs> yeah, let me. Like, uh, let, it's just a label, baby. It's just a label, you know. It's not <laughs> settled yet. <laughs> so how long have we actually known each other then? Is it almost a decade? I think I started in Lawfield Christmas 2011, so that must be nine years. That's a long time. Nine years. Yeah, nine, years. Long time. nine years. And so we have worked together not just at the film, we've also done Amazon, uh, we've done Tesco, and we've done Labara. And I don't know if we've done any more. Did you come into Talk Talk for a little while? I think you did. In? Sorry? I think you came into Talk Talk for maybe a couple of days. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Is this co- just coincidence? You've been crossing paths or assignments? No, I don't think everything was coincidental. It was mostly Chris moving on to something, and then I followed. I think, right? <laughs> like, yeah, generally. Uh, I mean, this is the thing, isn't it? You you build you build relationships, and uh, if you find that someone is good, then you go back to them. Um, and that's uh, why Patrick keeps coming back because he's good. <laughs> And now he's no, on the show. No, 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 that's actually true. I think, like, uh, Chris, you went to Tesco. Um, I was looking for something else after uh, after Prime Video. I joined you in Tesco. Like, I, I was still in Tesco, I think, when you moved to Labara. Um, well, I've been through a few it. different places. I think I was, uh, I'd, I'd done, I'd already done The Zone and I'd already done Talk Talk in its first guise before I went to Labara. True. And uh, then we needed someone at Labara to run that thing full time. So you were the man to come in and do that. Yeah, good, good old times, good old times. 
it might seem a little strange now, but um, at the time, I think I struggled to place your accent because you'd just been working in Ireland. Um, That's actually true. So tell tell the listeners where you're from. All right, I'm uh, I'm actually from Holland, um, born and raised, uh, and indeed before for joining Love Film, I worked for the Independent, the the news group. Um, which had branches in London, Dublin, and Belfast, um, and I travelled uh, quite quite a quite a number of times to in Belfast. Um, and I think that's what you're referring to—that my accent m- must have come across as a bit of an Irish accent rather than like a broken broken Dutch record that tried to uh, <laughs> try to speak English. Yeah, well, you tend you do tend to assimilate and pick up certain accents. I think depending that's on true. wherever it is that you're working. And so you I did guess. have an Irish lilt. <laughs> I, I, I do hope that it's gone now, though. Is it, <laughs> is, it, is it still there? I think it's probably gone now. Sam, what do you think? Is that the Irish or the... Um... <laughs> yeah, do you think he's lost his Dutch accent? No, do you think he's lost his Irish accent? No, I can't really hear it. I'll listen out for it now. I wouldn't, I wouldn't have said, like, oh, you're yeah. from... You sound like you're maybe from Ireland, but... I'll listen for it now. <laughs> all right, all good. But I think one thing that's quite interesting, though, is the amount of commuting that you did, because you've done a hell of a lot of commuting over time. And you were in the UK permanently for a little while as well, but how long have you been back home in, uh, in permanently in the Netherlands now? Now? Yeah. Uh, I moved back March 2018. So that's uh, roughly two and a half years. Two and a half years. And, but you were doing a lot of traveling backwards and forwards. I think you've done a lot of traveling all over the world, really. Um, how on earth have you managed to sort of, I don't know, be as productive as you, as you are whilst traveling so much? Uh, I, I, you know what it is? Like, I think traveling, and it's not any different. A plane is not, it's just a flying, a flying tube, right? It's nothing, it's nothing else. It's like it has seats and you sit down and you take out your laptop and, 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 uh, and you do some work. Obviously, the most annoying, uh, the most annoying thing about flying is being at the airport and not being able to do anything but just to queue up for your EasyJet uh, flight. Um, but uh, other than that, it's, um, it, it, it's, it's basically work time. Uh, you, you, you're in you're in a plane. Pull out your laptop, start working. Especially, I did usually um, Friday to Mondays in in Holland. So I flew out to back to Amsterdam on uh, on Friday night, or sometimes even on Thursday night. Um, started working in the um, in the plane, drove home from the airport, and then uh, on the Monday morning, uh, left home around six ish. Um, had a had a flight at eight thirty which landed in London because of the hour time difference uh, at, at 8.30 as well. So it's, uh, it's mainly uh, the, uh, it, it's a lot of work uh, uh, that, that, that you can do in that time um, and um, be productive during the same time as you travel. But you must have been absolutely hey, give one, exhausted. Give me, one, give me one sec. There's like a, a little girl that wants to say hi. And <laughs> me? Is it here in the boot? That's definitely not Irish. <laughs> it's not, is it? Yeah. Yeah. 
<laughs> Maintaining um, social distancing in the household, I see, with the high five. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no. No, she wanted to, uh, she wanted to play somewhere and... Um... Right, all good. Um, so she's off now. She's uh, like uh, going going off and play with a, with a schoolmate. You mentioned about your traveling and, and working all over the place. And uh, I've done my fair bit of traveling, obviously nowhere near as much as that. But the, the one thing that sort of I found, it, 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 you're right, it's not really the traveling um, aspect of it. You're, you're, you're there, you've got your laptop, you can work. But as Chris alluded to, like, it's more so the time differences and maintaining sort of jet lag and, you know, having to adjust with the new time. Like I know when I was in Bali, it was eight hours difference and to work with the UK was really, really difficult. I'd have to stay up. And if I can imagine if I, if you were two weeks into a new kind of place and you're starting to adjust to their time zone, did you want to speak a little bit about that? How you kind of adjusted to all the different locations as you were traveling? Yeah, I think the, the like don't get me wrong like uh, Holland and and uh, in the UK is a 1 hour time difference so like not not a whole lot to uh, to take uh, into account or to be concerned about. I think like and Chris knows this um uh, just as well as I do. I guess like we um when we were both in prime video I did my my fair share of traveling to Seattle where uh, Amazon's headquarters uh, for prime video was at that point. Um, and that's a bit bit rougher. So I didn't I didn't really mind going there, but like coming back from Seattle and uh, with an eight hour nine hour time difference yeah. is like it's, a, it's really back. hard. Like it's yeah. ridiculous. Um, and uh, so it always took me like a couple of days to to get back into a rhythm uh, again. Mm. Um, but again, like uh, the, the the flights to Seattle, I think it's a 12, 13 hour flight. It's it's mostly like working, relaxing a little bit, like watch some uh, watch some shows, watch a movie, uh, and then uh, land, go to your hotel and start working again. So, well, they pretty mm-hmm. much expected you to start straight away as soon as you'd landed in Seattle, didn't they? That's that's actually true. First to the uh, first to the office and and after to the hotel. That's actually true. <laughs> yeah. yeah, there is intense like. I can imagine like, you know, when, when you're in Seattle, if you've got to maintain connections back in the UK, like my theory, here, here goes Sam's, you know, traveling theory. But if you're in a different location and you're working from, you know, say you're in Seattle working with the UK, it's better to kind of maybe wake up a little bit later in, or mm, no, maybe wake up earlier in the day to try and align yourself with the with UK time zones. I mean, obviously it depends why you're there. If you're working in Seattle with um, the US customers or whatever, then there's probably not much need to adjust. But I'm just trying to think if I'm having to, if I'm in, say, again, Bali being the example, if I'm in Bali, maybe just waking up a little bit later and moving my, you know, my, my waking hours to later on in the day. That's kind of my theory of how it might be done. But did you have to do a lot of intercontinental yeah, intercontinental kind of um, timekeeping or meetings or anything like that? Or uh, when you were in Seattle, was it just working with US customers? I think like a couple couple of different answers. I think mm. um, like in Prime Video with having two major development centers, both in Seattle and, and, uh, and London, it, like, it, it was a struggle like every day, right? Like you had to wait for... Uh, Seattle teams to wake up at 4 p.m. in the afternoon 
and then depended on the outcome of uh, of that alignment like you still had to do a couple of hours work on that day right to to just make sure that you um that you nailed everything and could deliver uh, everything before like you um uh, you took off and went ho uh, went home again um so so that's one thing um so so in some in some regards like traveling to seattle made that um made that alignment a lot easier but then uh, working with the London teams again, uh, obviously you only had that like brief, uh, brief moment in the, in the in the early mornings to actually talk to your peers uh, and directs uh, back in uh, back in London. Um, I, I I didn't actually struggle struggled with any of it. Uh, I think we tried to mostly do our things in the two hours uh, that we had in, an overlap between four and six, four and seven uh, uh, London time and make sure that we, uh, that we, that we'd address uh, everything that we needed to address in those couple of hours. Mm, yeah. I, I guess then it's just as assignment dependent then on how, you know, yeah. you wouldn't yeah, be good... in place if you didn't have to work there sort of thing. Yeah. And also like we didn't really have to talk to customers. Right. So, mm -hmm. um, uh, it was mainly like alignment between, uh, between tech and product teams. Um, and, uh, and it, like in the, in the few hours that we had, like, I think we managed pretty well. Yeah. When you were traveling within Amazon, it's more like you're traveling within Amazon, isn't it? It's like you are in an Amazon bubble and the only reason yeah. you're going to Seattle is so that you can actually spend time with that development team and, get through things that are more difficult to do over video conferences really exactly exactly although of course yeah. the video conferencing tools are much better now than they ever were true that <laughs> no like uh, um but i never i never like found found it a burden to do things over uh, over video conferencing it's more that like like you say chris when you um, like have a big program to run with with teams across those different time zones. It's also um, like the actual personal relationship uh, to have with those people. So it's it's not even that it couldn't uh, it always couldn't couldn't be done over video conferencing. But uh, from having personal contacts with uh, um, uh, with people uh, with peers, um, it also made it sparks other conversations than you would have had over video conferencing. Yeah, I think the relationship building side of it is, is probably the most important. But I mean, how long did you spend out there in total, do you think? Because you did like two week bursts here and there, didn't you? Or one week bursts? Yeah. Obviously, you were the veteran traveler within Amazon. So you were the one that was nah, primarily sent well, over. The, 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 <laughs> Well, you know what it is like the, the the program that I ran at that point. Like um, I basically ran the move to uh, AWS. So Prime Video in its early days, they they weren't. Um, uh, although like AWS was uh, uh, was already around and successful, um, Prime Video wasn't actually hosted on any of the AWS services. So most of uh, most of the teams and and um, and technology that was built was actually built on bare metal. Um, and my one of my programs was to move all of those teams off of that bare metal onto AWS or EC2 at that point. Um, and that like required uh, a lot of traveling back and forth, uh, like both with the EC2 teams in in Seattle, but also with the uh, with the Prime Video teams to like actually start uh, start to make the move to um, to bare metal. Um, how long? I have no idea. Maybe like. Um, 
That's quite a while. I guess. Quite a while. I remember when we were working on that project that um, uh, that was when I realized that you didn't have a, a word for um, data migration in Dutch. No, that's totally true. Yeah. <laughs> data migration. Because <laughs> obviously you'd be picking up the phone and switching into Dutch and then all of a sudden you'd hear data migration <laughs> in a perfect that's, English that's accent. That's the one... Exactly. No, like, and um, but like that. That's also a little bit of Dutch, right? I think Dutch is there's all there's so many words in Dutch that are borrowed from foreign languages. Like whether it's uh, German or or French or English, there's uh, there's a lot of uh, of those words. This is a specific uh, word that, like, I I could have probably do it in Dutch if I wanted, but that wouldn't make it any clearer to uh, to who I was speaking to at that point. What do you think the most complex part of uh, of, of that program was? Because obviously moving an, an entirety of an Amazon department uh, to from you know tin to a AWS was quite a significant undertaking. What do you think was the most complex part of that? Like the, it, it depends on the area. I think the most complex part was to actually convince software engineering managers and directors that they needed to put. Uh, investment into actively migrating from uh, bare metal or tin uh, onto AWS. I think that that was the most complex thing, like uh, making making them um, aware of the advantages and disadvantages of like staying or moving. Um, because like the the, the 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 pressure in Amazon is is ridiculously high, right? Um, people work 60, 80 hours a week uh, and still like you're not delivering features and value fast enough to customers as uh, as one might uh, might like or might want. Um, and then there's this guy coming along and saying like, no, you need to spend half of what you're doing, half of the the, the resource that you have on like migrating to this uh, to this new solution. So um, I think that's the that, that that was actually the most complex part, the the human part. Um, from a technology point of view. Um, it is the right call. We were uh, um, like we were, or uh, most of uh, uh, Prime Video was hosted on Tin, which isn't really a scalable solution. So uh, the moment that teams needed more or less <clears throat> uh, server capacity or bandwidth or or whatnot, um, there was always this manual process needed to actually get them to scale to the to the numbers that they needed to. Um, so scaling and capacity planning needed to be spot on um, for bare metal to work. So one of the one of the biggest advantages for those teams was to um, uh, was the ability to not have having to worry about capacity planning anymore. Uh, and obviously, they needed to do that a little bit. But, well, there was um, a lot of effort, uh, if I remember rightly, put into capacity planning. There was a lot of uh, science that went into that. That's true. That's because we were on bare metal. <laughs> because, like, no, like, uh, don't get me wrong. Um, bare metal means that you have a physical instance in a data center. Um, and one of the one of the things in Prime Video um, is, uh, or one of one of the big challenges in Prime Video is to make sure that you scale to the two peak days a year that Prime Video is used most by uh, by customers. Uh, so that's um, Boxing Day. And New Year's Day, um, and those two days, like the the actual uses of the service would go through the roof. It would be like three, four times as much as like any any previous peak in the year. Um, and that's generally because people are getting their uh, Kindle fires out 
uh, on on yeah. Boxing Day and starting to play okay. with them. That, that's true, but also like even without that, it's like people uh, like are recovering from the from the days before. Oh, well, right? absolutely, like, yes. uh, it's the <laughs> Christmas Day. No one wants to do anything on Boxing Day. No one wants to like get off their couch on on New Year's Day. Uh, like they they just uh, wanna wanna get rid of the hangover like while while watching a movie or or some shows. Um, so so that, that that's a that's a massive challenge in if you're on bare metal because it doesn't scale. Um, it doesn't scale so well if you don't do the, the right amount of capacity planning. Um, so one of the one of the one of the challenges were was actually the, the capacity planning, uh, which we uh, in Prime Video spent six to nine months on doing just uh, to to be ready for Boxing Day and New Year's Day. So I think there's there's something they're extremely grateful for now that they don't have to worry about it because it's on EC2 or it's probably on somewhere else by now, I'd imagine. Yeah, I hope so. Yeah, um, I, I, I uh, like, so, like, don't get me wrong. Like, uh, I think uh, moving to Easy Two was one thing, but there's a, a lot of other components that needed to scale with it that we didn't address uh, in in that time that I was there, like database scaling, etc. Um, so uh, they 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 must have still had some challenges uh, after we left. Um, so am I right in thinking that Prime Video wasn't on AWS for? How, like how long? Uh, like they started on bare metal. Like uh, I can't. Yeah. I, I don't actually know when when they launched in the US. When they launched um, Prime Video, it must have been. I think they originally launched as that unboxed when, thing, didn't they? That you could download as an yeah. application. You would run on your on your on your computer. Exactly. Two thousand nine, maybe. Yeah, something like that. So I think that you know this yeah. was what probably twenty twelve ish. No, like after. Um, like I think we launched Prime Video in twenty. That was twenty twelve, I think. Twenty thirteen. and then this this ran until twenty fourteen. Oh, really? Like so that's easy to migrate. So that you carried on doing because I'd already gone by then. So that you. Yeah. So uh, that was just before you came and joined me at Tesco. Yeah. So scaling capacity planning, uh, the mic easy to migration, etc. Which again necessitated a hell of a lot of uh, traveling. So were you living in the in the UK at that point? Because the... I was actually. Yeah. yeah. Kids, kids, kids were there. Missus was there, and uh, we lived uh, in uh, in a small small town just outside of the uh, outside of London. But that was only for a few years, I think, though, right? And then you went back to commuting. Until, <laughs> until yeah, till twenty fifteen, maybe twenty fourteen. No, like maybe even earlier. Yeah, like just for uh, for two years, yeah, I think. Yeah. So, what was the what was it about life in the UK versus life in the Netherlands that decided to that made you want to go back to the Netherlands and go back to the commuting? Yeah, I think like that that wasn't so much my my choice. <laughs> um, the uh, no, like the, the 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 kids went to school in the UK. Um, the misses, um, so my partner was actually taking care of the kids. She wasn't working, had no real, like no family, mm. uh, like missed her friends a lot. So uh, like we discussed it, and uh, and they moved back, um, like to Holland, and I would do. Uh, like the weekends and and all and the the holidays at home uh, and the rest in uh, in the UK. So it must be a lot easier for you now that you're back in, back in Holland. Oh yeah, definitely. Yeah, yeah, yeah definitely. Because I did a yeah, stint yeah. just last just the last year where I was driving to Birmingham for three days a week, and that's obviously not nearly as far. But being away from oh, home my. for three days a week is really hard. 
Yeah, no, like it is. And um, it's it's also um, like at some point you just have to, uh, don't get me wrong, the, 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 the technology challenges in, in London are um, are a lot more attractive than what you'll find here in the Netherlands, right? So there's a there's a there's a uh, London is uh, has it's a huge city with a with a very big uh, t technology scene, um, and Amsterdam is more of a traditional like at that point at least like a couple of years back more of a traditional uh, like a city with traditional technology. Mm. Mm. Um, and now there's more and more startups coming, but at that point there wasn't anything to grow into that I that I enjoyed. Well, I mean, let's go back a little bit because I, I'm interested in well, what what was it you studied and what was it that got you into this career? In uni, I studied hotel management. Okay, um, so I can see the logical leap there from hotel management into there, computer science. There you go. <laughs> No, I did. I did hotel management. Um, I did my thesis on automation in hotel management, uh, and it was basically um, trying to come up with a model that um, that would allow uh, a tighter integration between technology and and uh, and and hotels. Uh, at that point, like the internet was just around. Like this is. Like I studied uh, between 1995 and 2000, um, and at that point, 1995, I think, like that's when the first CompuServe stuff came mm. around, etc. Um, the um, so my thesis was around technology and and hotels, or hotel management, um, and then I actually moved on to a uh, web development consultancy company where I took up a role first as an uh, as an intern, um, and then as a as an engineer. So I um, I studied uh, engineering on the side, um, and uh, from there it like it, 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 like started my way into technology. And so when when did you first uh, what, what, when did you first come to the UK or come to a different place? Because obviously we talked about Ireland before as well. When did you first leave yeah. home to go and work for the type of tech that you wanted to work in? Uh, I think that was with uh, with the independent. So, oh, like, okay. um, I I actually started um, with that web development company. Uh, stayed there for a couple of years. Then moved on to a large uh, a large uh, IT firm in Amsterdam called Geotronics, um, and they were basically doing a lot of content management systems for newspapers. So Dutch newspapers, German newspapers, but also uh, Nordics, mm -hmm. um, Sweden and Norway, um, and for the independent group in, uh, in the UK and Ireland. Um, and, um, and that's when I first started traveling, Belfast, Ireland, uh, London, here and there, uh, spent a lot of time over there. And when you were doing that, you, yeah. you did work quite a lot on language side, if I remember right. Is that right? I mean, so like, on the uh, language Peter, processing, uh, you started to do stuff with uh, NLP. Yeah. yeah. So could you talk to us a bit more uh, yeah. about that? Yeah, maybe not. Um, so not on speaking language, yeah. but more on like written language. Yeah. Uh, obviously, working for a newspaper. Uh, don't you remember, by the way, Chris? Because, uh, like, I, I, I wouldn't even have come up with it. Um, <laughs> well, but, I remember um, now that you said that you'd start to study in hotel management, and that's just, that yeah. just twigged it, you yeah, see. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 
No, it's a, it's a, it's true. I um, uh, we did a lot of work around trying to come up with algorithms that would uh, um, analyze a written text and get a sense of um, of uh, subjects, topics, uh, natural persons. Uh, as lists from that text, so that we could re start relate articles together that were focused around the same topic, around the same persons, around the same subjects, etc. Um, and uh, we actually built a a system around that. And it's also um, like why, why and how I actually started in Love Film, mm. uh, because the work that we were doing for the independent was mostly based on a um, on a search engine called Solar. Mm -hmm. Um, mm. And uh, and so we did all the uh, all the language processing, storage, etc. In uh, in Solar. Um, so I had my fair share of knowledge around uh, Apache Solar. Um, and as it as it ha ha happened to be, um, LoveFilm at that point had their catalog system fully based on Solar, and it didn't scale very well. So the platform would uh, would crumble and go down. When uh, when a lot of uh, a lot of customers were actually accessing the catalog, it did. I remember that catalog. actually. I remember we had to have a couple of summit meetings when we had. Uh, was it every Monday night? It used to go down periodically, and it came down yeah, to just yeah, one yeah, yeah. user, if I remember rightly, who had uh, who had indexed yeah, the entire like catalog into their uh, exactly <laughs> to their exactly. watch list. So like uh, exactly, it was like a like a very a very um, a very like uh, small group of users mm. that were actually. Um, like consuming so much of like putting it on the watch list or browsing and searching and such like that, the the actual catalog system would go down. And the team looking after that um, was in need of someone that knew the intrinsics of Solar. Mm. Um, so that's uh, that's how it started with LoveFilm actually. That's it. So what was the resolution there for that then? Did you wasn't calling them up saying you know stop what you're doing? Did you have to kind of figure out a way to? allow these people to index and, and do what they need to and solar then just handle it? Like, how, how did you resolve that? Like, I, I don't, like, I can't actually remember what the <laughs> actual uh, things, but like, I don't think we actually solved it in solar itself. I think we solved it as in, in a combination of a, uh, a MySQL index and, and solar. So I, I think what we did is we actually, like, don't get me wrong. Like we had, the, 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 there was one catalog system that was actually used for multiple different um, uh, different reasons, and that I think that that was the biggest problem, right? There was a piece of technology that was used in different in different ways, and by separating out those use cases, we were much. Um, it was much easier to actually start scale to one certain use mm -hmm. case than to like three or four different use cases uh, uh, together. It's crazy. Like I, I find that as an interesting solution because, as like techni technicians, engineers, or whatever, I think we're so keen to kind of dive into the code and fix the code. Whereas sometimes abstracting yourself and thinking, well, first of all, could this be a UI issue? And of, you know, I'm front end, so like that's sometimes the way I look at it. Is it a U can we modify things in different ways? So it's quite interesting that actually the technology was perfectly capable just abstracting a bit from that and solving an issue that you know fixed it fixes it i guess that's quite yeah. cool yeah and i think that's also like how like 
um, in, in LawFilm, but also in Amazon, what actually started changing the way that I look at these things. Um, yeah. If you, um, uh, in, in the years to follow, and, and we'll probably touch on that a little bit, yeah. um, I, like more and more you see patterns that are actually entangled within each other that makes it hard to scale and to, that, that makes it make, make things uh, complex um, to implement, to support, et cetera. And building on top of, uh, building on top of those things only make it, makes it more complex and more um, um, of, or harder to support uh, rather than, than easier. So I also think that uh, there, there are a couple of things that, um, um, that that technology teams can do to uh, to make it easier for themselves, like invest a little bit of time to make sure that you have the a, a solid building ground uh, of of all the technology that you're doing with the, with the right principles uh, makes makes your development cycle so much faster and shorter. Mm. Yeah, you need to know the technology inside and out to be able to do that, of course. But it's um, and it's hard. Well, okay. So there's a question then. So how do you how do you how do you deal with that when you're dealing with like a startup? You know, um, when you're try, you know, you don't know what you're building or you don't know what the outcome is, and you're still trying to figure out your product. Like that's that's great in theory to have a great foundation, but in startup culture you don't know what that is yet like i think it's twitter was was built on php or something and they completely rewrote it in no i don't know i'm, I'm throwing technologies out there but it takes a lot to really bring yourself back and rewrite something when you know your product i guess building a good foundation only comes when you know the product you know so is there anything you can speak to about that i, I think yes and no i think uh, in a startup, there like you have a vision, right? And and uh, as a, as a startup founder, you need to make sure that that vision is taken throughout the company, but especially taken product team that that you have. Even if it's like three or four people, like maybe even one engineer, um, there's always a fundamental um, um, a fundamental decision that you in technology need to need to make. Um, I started um, in in my current role um, in a company that like was still a startup, but um, uh, grew to ten engineers already at that point. Um, that had uh, huge issues with their technology stack and scaling to the number of users, um, like different personas, not just one persona, but different personas that uh, that they were um, that they were serving or creating value for. I think. Um, Regardless of the startup, you know that you want to scale to a certain number, right? So like, for example, for Twitter, they want to go to as many users as possible um, that, that uh, basically liberate the, uh, the, the short form of blogging. I think that that was what they, what they, uh, what they mm. were initially after. I think that that was their sales pitch um, yeah. initially. Um, but you know that like you need 2 million users to, to become profitable uh, or like in, in, in case of Twitter, you need 336 million. I, I'm not even sure if they make, if, if they're profitable at the moment, but um, like you need a lot of users, right? You need a lot of content. Um, so you need both a lot of uh, producers of that content and you need a lot of consumers of that content in order to be profitable. Um, 
and or, or in order to build a sustainable company maybe not profitable but uh, to to uh, build a sustainable company um you need as a as a founder uh, or a technology leader in in a startup like that you need to make sure that you that you start building your technology with that in mind you don't have to scale up to to like serve 336 million uh, users tomorrow but you need to be aware that that's where you need to go to mm -hmm. and obviously you don't have all the fancy technology around so you need to uh, build it yourselves but the moment that you have in mind that at some point you need to go to that 336 million users you start building technology differently because mm. you can't at that point uh, use uh, like a single database to to read and write at the same time uh, mm. because that will overload your uh, your database so you need to start like separating out those things like as early as possible. Make sure mm. that you scale to those to those different needs uh, independently, um, because that helps you in your journey later on. Mm. How do you? Okay, so where do you start then with that? Because I'm hypothetically, I'm I'm a founder. I've got this vision. I'm not technical. So not not a technical founder. Just got this great vision, and my mate is a developer. And they only know PHP or they only know Ruby on Rails, right? So naturally, yeah. they're going to use PHP or Ruby on Rails. What would you say to that founder, you know, relying on the developer who only knows a couple of languages? Like, you know, is, is there a consultancy piece in that? Is there somewhere, somehow, someone they can go to to really assess the needs and the, and the landscape of the, the vision and then you know, that, that tech person is like, right, well, it sounds like you need this and this and this. where should someone yeah, start question. if they've got a vision? Yeah. Good question. I think, uh, like maybe to your first point, I don't think a, uh, um, the choice of a programming language matters, right? Like if, uh, if you have a, a technical co-founder or, you know, a mate that can do like that first uh, bunch, like that first, uh, lump of work for you, um, and it's uh, it's uh, like you can afford uh, to to potentially pay for it and get it delivered. And it doesn't really matter which programming language you use. It's also it doesn't really matter which uh, data store technology you use, which uh, hosting you use. Um, I think that the, the the biggest advice that I would give is to start uh, is to separate out the the. The, the different actions that happen on your technology. So like, so, like first thing, maybe uh, make sure that your te technology partner or your engineer uh, understands that um, at some point in the near future, you're going to separate your read and write technology from each other. So um, like writing to a data store has a very different characteristic than reading from a data store. Whether you do that with PHP or Java, it doesn't, it doesn't really matter. So, um, the, the 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 first thing that you ask is uh, and maybe like you have to be obviously a little bit um, um you need to have a little bit of technology background but um start with separating out those things and try to think in uh, more abstract concepts uh, as domains so like twitter has a has a domain um uh, for like reading reading tweets um and the other uh, the other domain is actually producing that that content producing those tweets and they, they have a commercial uh, uh, domain etc try to start 
thinking of those things as, as independent uh, areas where you need to deliver technology that could potentially be separated out from that, like the, 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 the first thing that you are doing at that point. So try to build technology that's independent and abstracted away on those different domains. CQRS. CQRS. Command query uh, responsibility segregation. Am I right in thinking that's domain-driven design? Is that what that is? Uh, yes and no. I think like domain-driven okay. design is, is, is the buzzword that, um, or like the, the, the area where you take that to the next level, but it's definitely um, like the, 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 the groundwork towards uh, something It's the best like place that. to start. Yeah. Mm. yeah. Well, I'm, I'm trying, I'm trying to think of a founder who is not, obviously they're interested in tech, but really they're there to build a team of people around them who can take care of that while they worry about the vision, they worry about funding and all the rest of it. I'm trying to think of that kind of founder and what they can sort of take from what you said then, which, you know, the, it sounds like they need someone who has well, a CTO, right? It does sound like they need a CTO really to, to really make those calls and those decisions. It's just, again, I'm startup culture is just get what you can as quickly as you can get it and start providing value. And, um, I guess that I yeah. just thought that conflicts a little bit with getting a good foundation is that when do you start making a good foundation when you've got yeah, something that's I, earning money? Exactly. I don't think a good foundation is something that is any different, right? It just changes the mindset of how you, how you develop those things. Um, mm. in, in the sense that if you, if you, if you talk to a database, you can do like a couple of things. You can like have a, have a native integration uh, between your programming language and your database. You can abstract it away, or you can like fully separate out the two concepts uh, in in uh, in a in a processing stack and a data store stack, and then build a build a bridge between those things. Um, so um, as long as you're mindful that at some point. Like you're there because you want to make a startup successful. You're there to uh, bring your ID to life. And, and obviously uh, it's either investors that need to believe in it, or you need to get a, uh, you, you, you need to pay your own salary or like your own salaries in the, um, um, and, and the paychecks in, in your startup. I think that in order to make everyone aware that um, you need to grow into something, um, you have a vision as a, as a co-founder and as such a responsibility to let everyone in the company know that like, like from sales to tech, you need to, you need to be able to grow into that, uh, into that end vision. Um, and that doesn't mean that you have to build for it now, but you have to like the moment that a, that a technology an engineer or CTO or whoever, uh, buys into that vision, they need to be able to translate that into what do we need to do today for them. Yeah, I think you've got to find the right position, haven't you, between um, when do you make that shift into the more strategic stuff? When do you make, when, when do you just get something delivered so that you can start to sell your idea? And when do you make that shift? Of and course. I think it depends very much on the type of CTO that you're going to have working for your company or the developer that's going to be working on your company, really. Yeah. That, like that, and maybe to, there was a good point of Sam earlier. Um, is that um, uh, Sammy said like 
like when you're starting, you, you just want to create value for your customers, right? Like you don't have time to build a good foundation and, and, and you're right. Um, and like I said, a good, good foundation doesn't mean that, um, that you're over engineering everything. Uh, it's just like being mindful of the technology that you deliver. And I think the second point to that is, um, from a startup perspective, um, you never know what, like you're, you're uh, um, you're basically creating a company in a space that no one went before, right? Um, because because of the business model or because of the technology, because of the area, because of like the product that you're building, you're doing it because no one else dared to do it or no one else thought of doing it. Um, and as such, um, and, and that's what I learned in my current role more than I guess any other company is that you never know what's successful. Right, so you can build feature after feature after feature, and it 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 can lead to nothing. Mm. It can uh, it can mean that um, your your leap of faith, your big jump of what you think uh, your customers find valuable, isn't valuable at all. So um, there's a there's a there's not a point to that in um, in that uh, what we what I try to do at least. Um, in my current role is to make sure that we learn first before we build. So we learn about what our customers want before we actually invest in building it. How, how do you go about doing that then? Uh, so in, in our current, in our current uh, company, we, we do something called hypothesis um, uh, development. And that means that basically what we do is we uh, we draft a, uh, an hypothesis about like what we think our customers uh, would think of a certain feature. Mm -hmm. So, um, for example, we build a donation tool um, because uh, we thought that um, no, sorry, we build a donation feature uh, because we we assumed that our customers, the like the fans watching the football, would want to donate uh, a little bit of money to their favorite club. Uh, just to help them out in like, because there's an emotional attachment. There's a, a grandma and a grandpa uh, watching the, um, watching the football match of their, of their grandson. Um, we assumed that people wanted to donate a little bit uh, to make the football club of their grandson uh, um, uh, like a little bit better buy new shirts, mm -hmm. buy new footballs, buy new, like whatever it was. So, what we did is we didn't build a donation system. We built a very we, we built a an overlay uh, like a button and an overlay on the website that says like donate now, where they could pick and choose the amount that they wanted to donate. And the moment they clicked uh, next or submit, um, we basically gave them another uh, another UI that says like all right, like uh, thank you for your uh, for your feedback. We're uh, we're working on a on a on a functional uh, on a functional tool that would actually allow you to donate. But it basically helped us identifying the intent of uh, whether people wanted to donate. Uh, in the end, what we saw, no one was donating. No one was actually <laughs> clicking the button. No one wanted to to use the feature. So I'm glad that we didn't build the whole payment flows and and the user registration flows as part of them, um, but only started to try to prove an hypothesis before building the actual backend technology behind and it. So that's part of the sort of fail fast uh, philosophy, I guess. 
Exactly. It's hypothesis-driven mm -hmm. design uh, or development, um, and uh, and and also one of the one of the good things that we try to do at least is to identify the metrics that we want to see uh, that we want to see change because of the development that we're doing. So, let's say uh, we're introducing a feature like uh, one of our other failed features is, uh, or maybe not failed, but it wasn't a success as we as we hoped it to be. Is uh, cheering. Like we introduced a feature where people could actually cheer online, and um, and it, it would show a little bit of uh, hearts over the over the football mm -hmm. video um, for their for their team. Um, and we thought it would uh, like our hypothesis was that because of the cheering, people would engage more with the video and would would stick around a little bit longer um, because of that uh, because of that feature. Um, so we also tried. In, in, in all of those stories, we try to uh, um, um, identify the, the actual value that it would bring to us as a company, right? So like we have more engaged users, so they, they'll come back more or they'll watch more of the video. We have more potential of selling them a, 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 an ad, for example, uh, in the video. And um, because of that, you can learn what your customers want. Um, and you can basically iterate on the good things and stop the bad things. That's very cool. So let, let's so let's talk about my kuju then. Um, and what actually what does it mean? What does kuju mean? Is it is it um, anything to do with Stephen King? No, <laughs> like the, the <laughs> I wish no no it's um, so my like kuju is the uh, uh, like spelled with a U instead of double O um, is the first. Uh, recognized form of football so like it's it's a very early form of football that's recognized by fifa as the first form of football. oh really that's fascinating so that's where the uh, we've learned something where the micro wording come from yeah um but yeah i started um my kujo um like i came back from london i worked for uh, ovo energy for a while um had the opportunity to start with my kujo uh, like in uh, in early 2018 uh, as a tech director, um, I started there, um, like my Kujo is still a startup with an engineering organization of like maybe 10 engineers, um, some products, some UI, UX, and some business functions. Um, they had uh, issues with the platform. So like as same, same story again, I guess, as with LawFilm. Um, they had scalability issues with the platform, uh, like uh, over a couple of thousand users on a video, their platform would just go down and like no one was able to enjoy the, uh, the video again. Uh, so that, that was the, 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 main, the main challenge. Um, and, um, but when I, when, I, when I came there, there were more, more challenges that, that I actually needed to solve before I could uh, work on the scaling issue. So when I joined, uh, MyKujo had a had uh, implemented a, a pretty traditional engineering organization. So they had front-end engineers, mobile engineers, backup and uh, uh, sorry, um, backend engineers and DevOps engineers. Um, they had a product director. They had a QA resource. And basically, what would happen is that. And I documented it at some point, but from ID to design to product requirement to front-end development to back-end development, everything was 
not was not happening parallel everything was happening sequential so if you think that if you think of a feature i don't know um chat on like uh, you want to be able to chat next to a live video then what would happen uh, when i joined is that uh, a product director would think of a nice feature like chat then discuss it with uh, with the design teams that would start designing chat and it would be uh, taken to the front-end engineers and they would start thinking about like hey how long will it roughly take to implement chat then it would have been taken to a backend team to implement the actual backend technology needed. The backend engineers would then go back to DevOps engineers to figure out, hey, like what what uh, what databases do we need? What like compute do we need, etc. And all of that would go round in circles. So uh, and then back to the product director to tell the tell tell the product director that it would take 24 days to deliver and then the product director would say all right let's go and then it would start all over again so uh, first uh, like design a couple of days and then once the design was done uh, front-end engineering a couple of days and if that's a smooth running uh, like process then like still, it's it's a bit it's it's a it's a long time before you can get a feature uh, in front of your customers by uh, like having to wait for it. But then, if you imagine that uh, there was also in that dependency tree, there's a lot of things that can go wrong. Like someone interpreted the the uh, the requirement wrong, or uh, the, the the scale at which it needed to be implemented was much larger than initially thought. So. There was a lot of dependencies that would lead to uh, high delivery times of features to customers. And so what did you do about um, resolving that issue then? Yeah, so the first thing that I did is I mingled all of those functions. So I started uh, breaking down the, the, the different teams that were there. So like instead of a front-end team and a mobile team and a DevOps team and a mm -hmm. back-end team, I actually like started picking people from those different teams and put them into one team to be responsible for a certain domain. Um, without dependencies on others, they they basically had the, the right amount of knowledge and experience to solve the problem that I had to put in front of them. So um, basically, instead of all those different functional teams, we started creating cross-functional teams uh, on, different, uh, on different areas. Um, we defined a couple of areas, content production, content consumption, and streaming. Uh, and basically put put the people there. And what um, the, the the actual thing that happened was that all of those things that were happening sequential uh, before are now were now happening in parallel. Mm -hmm. So we would do um, uh, design, front end development, back end development, uh, database work, etc., all in parallel, and that cut down the delivery times by factor four. Or five. And this is what people would commonly refer to as something like the Spotify model. Uh, yes, in the in the core, or, or the same, or the same thing as what we did at Amazon, which is just that so happens that Spotify wrote a paper about it. <laughs> yes, yes, and and also like not just that Spotify wrote a paper about it, like the Spotify model um, also goes a lot deeper into the challenges that you get with cross-functional yeah. teams. So if you're a larger organization and you have a lot of these cross-functional teams, how how do you make sure that those teams are still aligned with each other? Like how do you make sure that all the backend engineers like still exchange information and form a community within while they're not in the same team yeah. um, so the spotify model is is a bit larger this is basic like cross-functional teams rather than 
But this is the same sort of model, really, that we had in Amazon. It's the same that we had in that we we were part of the implementation of at Tesco. Um, so how do you solve that if you don't know if you're not doing the full end to end Spotify model, all of the bells and whistles that they promote that they do in the Spotify model? How do you solve those cross functional um, conversations that need to happen? Um, like I tried to solve them in a certain way. So, um, I was, uh, uh um, before like joining my Kujo, um, I worked for OVO, OVO mm -hmm. Energy, and we had roughly the same challenge there. What we did instead of like a full on Spotify model, we tried to form communities. Um, so, um, uh, of like communities of interest, but also, uh, like communities of uh, people that that um, work on the same uh, same programming language, for mm -hmm. example, or the same area. Um, so I tried to do the same in my Kujo. Like uh, my Kujo at that point was a bit too too small for those communities because you you'd had a community meeting uh, around like backend engineering with four engineers, right? Like it doesn't. Like they talk to each other anyway. Um, At lunch, the, like, um, <laughs> <laughs> like they, they they sit next to to yeah. one another, right? But I think so. We were still fairly small and didn't actually have to solve that problem. Um, the other things that we did was uh, like we did a book club, mm. like uh, reading the reading the same uh, the same book uh, across uh, across anyone that was uh, was interested, and then come together and discuss. Some of the ideas in the book, some of the concepts, the pros and cons, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So that was uh, that was really nice. The other thing that um, that I'd say is that obviously for engineers, it's really nice to um, to talk to peers, to exchange ideas, etc., and to become a better engineers uh, continuously. But we made uh, the teams in like work independent of each other. So they didn't have any dependency on one another. Obviously, uh, creating communities makes sure that they can interact together. But in order to deliver to their customers, it wasn't uh, it wasn't really necessary for those teams to come together. Um, building independent teams is also how you can get away with with like not spending too much time on implementing a Spotify model. And obviously at some point you'll need to because your engineers are like the 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 the, the people that, that actually have to create the, the value to customers. Uh, they're the most important resource in a, in a startup. Um, but by actually making them independent of another, made sure that we could deliver without any issues. Because they didn't, they didn't have to wait for the other team to deliver something uh, or a feature. Uh, they they were in like in charge of their own. Success. And so, how much faster do you think that's made your your organization then from making that shift? Like five times. Really? Wow. Definitely. And or five and times, have you yeah. since then? Have you have you then since been able to get into the scaling challenges and actually building the business up as well? Yeah, so like uh, a year in, we basically solved most of the challenges that we had, like both delivery, but also uh, mm -hmm. scaling. Um, so um, uh, our the, the streaming team that we created uh, actually chose to replace the third party streams uh, streaming uh, technology that they that they used uh, for a for a homegrown uh, streaming platform. 
Um, and that solved uh, a lot of uh, a lot of our issues. The other thing that we did in that first year, or maybe in the first couple of months, is um, one of the um, one of the annoying things about uh, scaling uh, an organization, but, and technology-wise, I mean, is that um, the, the the teams are always going to be dependent on one another. We had a team that is that uh, basically focused on our partner domain, uh, so uh, basically building features to allow our partners to create content, to create the video and to create metadata around the video, like clubs and teams and uh, who plays, et cetera. But all of that information obviously also needs to go to a front end to display it to the fans again. Um, so how, although like we created independent teams, we still had like that data communication between those teams. Um, one of the things that, uh, or the, the, the main thing that we did to keep teams being independent is that they don't like they they all do micro um, uh, a microservice oriented architecture mm -hmm. um, but we don't have internal apis so or uh, we do have some but uh, what we what we what we build is we build an event driven architecture mm -hmm. so whenever we had a partner creating uh, a match um, we would basically create a message on an event bus somewhere that could could be picked up by the streaming team and by the front end team, et cetera, et cetera, um, to actually process it in the way that they needed to see fit, uh, whether it was for in a search engine or just in a database to display it to the fans. Um, the data was on a on an independent uh, data bus uh, available to whoever needed it. Um, that also means that we don't have a lot of scaling issues in our stacks because we don't like none of the teams have to scale to a, another team's characteristics. So, a a team that uh, that is uh, responsible or the team that is responsible for displaying everything to the fans doesn't have to scale to all of those partners creating events at the same time. Um, and the the team uh, that builds partner facing features doesn't have to care about like the million of you like millions of users coming to uh, to that one football match. Um, so in order to keep them independent um, and be in charge of their own success, we basically created a an event-based architecture based on Apache Kafka. Well, I think that was um, you know particularly reassuring to me that you had created this system because meanwhile, in my three days a week I was doing in Birmingham, I was doing exactly the same thing. And to see that you'd published your architecture on, uh, on, on LinkedIn, um, I thought it was quite... Um, indicating for me to go thank god i'm not insane someone else has done this <laughs> someone that i trust as well um so yeah it's it, i think it's really interesting to see that you've come up with the same design obviously on a much bigger yeah. scale than what i've been doing for a small startup but um but yeah um how how have you solved that problem on the front end though because you talked about with the back end obviously you've got that almost infinite scaling that you can do with having stuff connected to a kafka message bus but how have you solved that front end problem as well so, like exactly the same the same way, right? So, um, the um, so the, the the front end is not just a front end, right? It's not just a a React or a, a, like a native web. We have what we call B what we call BFF services, so backend for front end, um, 
And uh, those services basically take in all the data that they need and then put it in their own data mm -hmm. stores the, um, and then scale those data stores. The good thing is that those data stores don't have to have to worry about the ingest of data. They're, they only have to worry about the querying of data. Like you, you mentioned CQRS mm -hmm. earlier, where you basically separate out the ingest from the from the read um, as a as a concept, and that's what we were we are doing with mm -hmm. Kafka. Um, if there's a huge amount of uh, partner data suddenly coming on Kafka, the uh, the team that is responsible for the front end services um, in the back end, obviously, um, like can limit how fast they read mm -hmm. it. Um, and then basically control how they scale. So um, if they if they need uh, a larger database and it needs like two hours to scale to that database, they can basically automate it in the sense that, all right, so we're gonna not read uh, above this threshold while we're scaling our databases, for example. Um, but in general, scaling the front end uh, is a lot of caching. Mm -hmm. Like uh, we have a we have a multiple caching layers um in uh, in our stacks we we have um uh, like fully isolated microservices that scale independently so even if it's not uh, captured by caching um like the, the the separation of concern between all our microservices means that we can scale to like whichever area uh, is uh, is affected by the high load mm. well i think there's a, there's a strong um theme in your career from scaling um, but there is also a strong language and search and recommendations area as well. Are you still making full use of search recommendations, etc., in uh, in in uh, MyKuju? Well, I should, shouldn't I? Uh, <laughs> but, but no, no, unfortunately not. So, like in MyKuju, um, the uh, like like MyKuju is is. Uh, is a company that that wants to bring that one specific match to mm. that one fan, right? So it's all it's all about the tight, um, the, the the tightly coupled relationship between the fan and the match. Um, and we try to do some experiments around like increasing engagement. The thing is, like your your grandma uh, like wants to watch their grandson, right? They don't want to watch the, the uh, like a similar match from the you, same you're right she does want to watch her grandson but i'm not very good at football <laughs> <laughs> you, you, should, you should try you should try no but but basically like uh, it, the the intent that that uh, that our customers have is very different from an intent that like shoppers mm, have for yeah. example so they're there for that's one specific reason and they're not too interested in all the other products that we have to offer like or content that we have to offer in this case I are you still uh, working on your startup, though? Of course. No, is that gone? No, like not gone. Like obviously, uh, like like working in a uh, in in my Kujo is it's ridiculous. It's like uh, it's the same working hours as Amazon. Um, it, it's um, it's it's even more if you if you think about like all the all the incidents in the first uh, half year, the first year that we had to do. Like there's just no room, no scope for it. Um, so unfortunately, I wish, but uh, not not. But at least the uh, the video theme has has managed to make its way all the way from Amazon and Love Film all the way through to to Mykuju. So you're a scaling and video expert, <laughs> I think at this point. Yeah, I think so. Like, and also like in in that journey, um, 
uh, like for example, working in Amazon with all these different teams helped me massively in understanding digital video, mm. right? So um, don't get me wrong, streaming is not easy, right? It's it's uh, it's really really hard to get. Well, right. it's essentially magic, isn't it? And it, it's it's I think it's it's bizarre with streaming video because obviously you know like we're actually doing this podcast over a video call now with Zoom. Everybody is using Zoom now. Um, and you know you get very very frustrated if you see that spinning wheel or if you lose connection and yeah, the amount perfectly. of frustration you get when you see that um, it is not really it's not really fair on the guys that are building the software because you are literally producing magic by managing to deliver a, st- a stream like an HD stream <laughs> yeah. Yeah, no, and and don't get me wrong, Prime Video was was easy on that regard because it wasn't live, right? Like we had like uh, mezzanine files delivered on on hard drives from the big studios into an office somewhere, and then like we copied it and processed it, and once it was there, it was there, and then like all you had to take care of is is then uh, video delivery. Uh, in my Kujo, we have to deal with live streaming, which is so how how uh, much like 10 how times... much more complicated is doing those live streams then? Yeah, it's like it's 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 a lot more complicated, and and um, the like you have to do so much. Uh, um, like all of the in in the if you do VOD streaming, mm. uh, like in Prime Video, you have an asset that is perfect, right? Like that's prepared for VOD streaming. It's a digital asset. You convert it, and and it's going to be perfect. In live streaming, you have to you have to deal with encoders like there's a there's a million different mm-hmm. encoders out there that can potentially produce a digital stream into a platform so you need to make sure that you follow the, the specifications that are out there and sometimes the encoders just don't follow the specifications so you like uh, the, the only way um to to fix that is to go with it like see a stream coming in if the stream isn't working, then like figure out why it's not working and then fix it so that like your next customer isn't hit by the same issue. So it's a um, it's a real challenge. Um, and then on top of that, uh, my Kujo is not just live streaming from a professional production company point of view, right? Like we don't have our our partners aren't the the uh, the the, the uh, broadcasting fans outside of a stadium. They are the dads that are filming their boys' matches on a mobile phone next to the pitch on a on a on really. A, um, so I was going to ask uh, you how that works. Then, so do you give them any kit to do that? Do you give them a tripod? Yes. No. Like, no. Like we don't give. Uh, like we give them the platform. Yeah, yeah. Um, there is a, like a, a mobile app. So don't get me wrong. Right. Like we have a mobile app, but you can also use uh, like professional streaming like uh, facilities if you want it's basically streaming into uh, into our uh, into our streaming servers but basically we have an app for smartphones for ios and android that you can use to actually uh, create your events and go live immediately from uh, from the mobile app you put it on a tripod next to uh, next to the pits and you start recording the match so if anyone um, wants to go and do this then so if anyone's recording their local five aside team they can sign up for mykuju and then they yeah, can go yeah, and take a phone just... and they can go and record their own five-a-side team. Exactly. And broadcast it live over, uh, over the, in, in, like within the MicroDeal platform. Um, so, so that's basically the tooling that we built. Um, the, the complexity, the additional complexity of doing that is that 
you're like like yourself no maybe not today uh, chris but um uh, sam's on a on a three or four g connection right yeah, yeah. and like that isn't always as stable so like what we also need to make sure of is that one like when you're streaming that we know that you're streaming um and uh, that whenever a connection drops that we don't kill your stream uh, in the backend right like we need to, you to be able to reconnect um, within a certain uh, within a certain time, like able to fix your stream, etc., uh, and not stop your stream because a video player on the front end is very um, how do I say this um, um, is very sensitive, mm. maybe very sensitive to like whether a stream drops yeah. or not. So whenever there's no new content coming in, because we do some transcoding uh, and packaging so that it plays nicely on a video player on the front end, if the stream suddenly stops, you just get that spinning, that spinning signal. Uh, so there's a lot of complexities to uh, to solve in the end-to-end -end live streaming um, video. For, for any of the bigger matches that you do, do you do you provide any any commentary over the top of those as well, or is it is it just the the plane? It's just it's just a platform, but for the uh, usually what happens with bigger matches is that they do commentary themselves, right? Like through right, a production okay. facility, and out of that production, because the bigger matches are usually also broadcasted on yeah, TV, yeah. right? So like they they usually have uh, production facilities to actually do that uh, to to do the production mm -hmm. uh, of the of the video stream. It's quite a fascinating uh, platform and product that you're working on, though. I mean, I mean to be able to put that sort of streaming technology in anybody's hands. I think that's uh, that's fascinating. Yeah. Um, no, it definitely is. And it took us like a, a long time to get things right. Um, but uh, I'm, I'm really proud of like uh, what, what the teams actually accomplished. Uh, like having, having an app on an Android phone, put it on a tripod and then like stream for 105 minutes into our systems and, and have the ability to actually uh, for for mom and dad to see it on our platform in real time live, it's it's. Uh, it's, it's and I think especially now as well, when people can't actually get out and go and see people, um, you know that's got to be even that's... more useful. Obviously, if the games yeah, are actually going um, ahead. <laughs> yeah, there, there you go. So like uh, end end of February, early March, um, like we're a startup, right? So um, what what's our like uh, our our revenue or like our business model is around uh, um, um, programmatic advertising, sponsorship, uh, um, a little bit of like professional services here and there. Um, but the moment that we don't have any content, like uh, it's also like we we're a startup, right? Like we're not making any mm. money, um, and um, and that's like was one of the one of the complexities um, in end of Feb, early March. Um, suddenly, we had no content in the platform wow. at all, right? So all, all of the all of the live content, like there weren't any live matches, etc. Um, and basically, what we did, um, uh, we had earlier plans to basically open up our technology for other customers than just MyCudio because our streaming technology is really, really good. Um, and there aren't a lot of companies out there that make streaming as accessible as we do uh, with our tools. So basically what we did is from early March is we, uh, we created a SaaS product uh, out, of our, uh, out of our streaming tools 
all my Kudia life mm. services. So we, we basically pivoted in, uh, in uh, what is it, like six months, uh, and we, we released my Kudia life services in August this year. So now we have a platform for like the long tail of football where you, you can just stream to with your, uh, with your five, to five, uh, five against five match. Um, but you can also use our streaming products like we're doing now. <laughs> so you can actually uh, create, uh, create a, an event, a stream, and you can just start streaming from, uh, from anywhere. It's very cool to create a live stream. Of course, uh, we, Sam and I benefit heavily from editing. Um, so <laughs> maybe in the future for, uh, for, for live shows, we'll be all right. But... <laughs> Yeah, no, but also like the, the the thing that the the thing that we did, and it's not just live, right? But the thing that we did is we took our technology and basically um, made it made it accessible as a, as a, um, uh, software as a mm. service. Um, and all the other things, like if you think about my Kudio, you could basically you can tag a goal in my Kudio. Like if you go to the platform, you see a list of highlights. Next to uh, next to a match, uh, you can uh, like uh, go back to the kickoff. You can go to a goal, etc. And then you're basically seeing that highlight. What we did in my Kudio Life Services is we created an annotation system, and the annotation system is um, is uh, a system where you can tag any moment in the live video or even out, like not in video, um, at a certain point in time, and then go back to that to that point. So. Chris, like if you want to trial at some point, like let me know, but it allows you to basically, Sam is now listening in, but it's basically creating a, an annotation that's, that's like, all right, so now we're talking about uh, a lot mm. or we're talking about this or we're tagging this, et cetera, et cetera. So it's really, really powerful what we built. And that's incredible. And uh, I hope that it's going, it's going well at the moment. You hope you're getting more and more people using that platform. Yeah, I think since uh, since our launch in August, we have roughly now uh, what is it, like thirty thousand minutes live streamed by customers. Wow. So um, by like external customers, so not my Kudio, but um, so uh, yeah, like we're getting. That's there. great. And is this like a passion project then? Like, it, it, like do you love sports or is streaming like what? No, it's basically no. It's a, it's a, it's a, um, like the the platform itself is around long tail football and and make that uh, that live uh, available to customers. And basically, what we saw is that uh, we weren't sure when uh, football content was coming back, and it it wasn't coming back for the first four months of uh, COVID around the world. Um, so we basically took that four months and dedicated tech and product onto building a a SaaS product that isn't out there yet. So we build a product that can compete with uh, with uh, other streaming platforms, but just made it more accessible uh, and feature rich to uh, to the customer. But basically a second business model next to um, next to what we have. But like sport, do you, are you are you keen on sports, or is that just how is that just how it took place? You know, just so happened no, but, that. Oh, from from myself, yeah, I, yeah, yeah, I like. I don't football. remember you watching much football back in our, our time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> no, like that, 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 that those were the, the times that uh, that you didn't see oh, me, right? See. Because I was watching like the, the Ajax matches, uh, like online. Oh, I see, yeah. But uh, no, definitely a huge football fan. 
So I think that makes that m- makes sense, really, doesn't it? To be able to bring your tie in your scaling ability, your uh, your your everything, your streaming together. ability, and then obviously your love for football. It has, as you said, has all come together. <laughs> yeah. No, no, it's it's uh, it's it's really nice to work in an environment where you can basically like uh, the things that you're passionate about and all those things coming together makes working a lot and, easier, and, right? If you're passionate about. And how are you things. finding it in a post-COVID world then, uh, where we're uh, we're now all working remotely? Are your teams still working just as effectively remote as they were in the office? I I would say even more effective. Mm. Um, it's um, you know what it, like it it reduces a lot of noise. Yes. Uh, like if you're in an office, there's uh, there's always a lot of like noise around, um, and obviously some people like that noise and like to be in an environment where you have that noise. Uh, others, um, not so much. I think uh, for what it's worth, there is a, a lot less interruptions in people's mm. work um, today. Uh, and I think, like we did a survey last week, and I don't have the results yet, uh, but amongst our um, our organization about like how people thought about like the current situation and what they would like to do um, in an ideal scenario. I think uh, the, the the results were mostly around people would want to go back to the office, but mainly for the social interactions rather for like the work itself. So do you um, think you will keep up some sort of hybrid in the future then? Yeah, I believe yeah. so. Yeah. Um, well, I think we are running over time. So thank you, Patrick, sure. for taking the time to speak to us. And hopefully when this uh, COVID lockdown is out of the way, we might actually finally get to meet up again um, and have a drink or Let's a coffee or something along those lines. Definitely. It's been, uh, it's been too long already, mate. Hey, Sam, thank you so much. Chris, thank you. That was amazing. If- and if there's anything else, then uh, like just. All right, know. cheers, Patrick. Yeah, thanks, and I hope you feel better. Yeah. All right. All right, buddy. See you soon.